All right, welcome back to Lynch Off Hockey Podcast. We're doing things a little different today. We're actually doing an interview in person for our episode. We're in a partnership with the Black and Gold LLC Productions, and you're here with co-host, father and son duo, Andrew and Jim Lindroff. Dad, how are you doing? I'm doing great, and we have great Ian Kestrich here, so we've got to have a little bit of explanation, Andrew. Yeah, so of course, Ian Kestrich played professionally, played all the way up until um, ECHL, has a great e-bug story. If you go back to episode 13, he was actually our very first guest on the show, and we'll bring up some of the old stories from last time, but we're also going to be talking about a lot of new topics today. But uh, we are here in a restaurant today with him, so it is a little different. We're here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. People yep. forgot that. Yep. And uh, you already talked about it. Uh, episode 13, please go back and listen to the great stories and career of, uh, of Ian. But Ian is near and dear to our heart, Andrew. He's got to sit there and listen to this again. But <laughs> because he was our very first guest, he uh, gave us the confidence. He was so nice, graceful. Uh, even gave us some uh, referrals for other players. And really, if it wasn't for you, Ian, we might not be having the show the way we have, but right. certainly we wouldn't have the success and have all the players. So uh, Ian Kessrick is here. So, Ian, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah. Yeah, so it's been almost a year since we did that first interview, and we didn't know what we're doing. We still don't, but <laughs> right. we're trying. So we do have uh, some other questions we want to ask you, but... Uh, Basically, we want to uh, say again with you, uh, you know, you are our first guest. It's our almost a year anniversary. We had you back on. Thank you for coming back on. Absolutely. Yeah, she's so far away. So I want to talk about, so uh, not to rehash our episode we did, but Ian has an incredible story uh, of his journey through the then CHL. Yeah. And, um, and he had a wonderful career. He hung it up. He came back as a e-bug situation here in Tulsa, then made a, an outstanding comeback, brings it all the way, helps Tulsa all the way through the conference finals, I think in 19? 2019, yeah. 2019. So uh, I want to kind of pick it up there and, and looking back, because Andrew and I went to all those games, the home games, and I want to talk about the situation. Um, goalie goes down in game five, or actually I'll let you pick it up here. We're in the conference finals, Toledo versus Tulsa. Uh, you're sitting in Tulsa. Yep. So pick it up from there, game five. So game five. Um, yeah, so I uh, I kind of got sidelined uh, from an injury at the end of the year, and I didn't see any playoff games. It was uh, the tandem of uh, Devin and Fitzpatrick. So I didn't have any expectations that I was going to get thrown in. Um, and at the time, we were playing uh, against Toledo. So when the team went on the road, I actually wasn't going on the road, but to uh, um, uh, I actually just stayed at home with the family. So uh, right before they left, I actually asked uh, Coach Murray if it was okay if I drove up to Cleveland. My little sister was graduating from college, and it was very important to her that, uh, that we came and supported her. So um, the night of Game 5... My wife's son and I are driving through the night from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Cleveland, which is about a 13 and a half, 14 hour drive. And uh, I got a, I got a phone call. Uh, it was 10:30 Central Time from the trainer saying, uh, "Be ready." And I, I asked him, I said, "Steve, what do you mean, be yeah, ready?" Be and ready. He, what is that? He, he, yeah, he, uh, he says, "Don't tell Coach I told you." And got off the phone with me abruptly, and I look over at my wife, and I'm like. Did you hear that? She said, yeah, and we kind of chuckled. And 
my son was sleeping, so he didn't hear any of this. But uh, I get a call later that night from Murray saying, hey, Devin's down. I need you here in Toledo. And uh, I said, okay, I'm on my way. And uh, drove through the night, and it was around 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning, we showed up in Cleveland, uh, pretty much dropped my bags at my parents' house, and let my son and wife hang out with my family, and I went for a, a, a jog, a run, just to get my legs under me. Um, we raced off to, uh, just south of Toledo is where my sister was gra- having her graduation party, so visited her, gave her a hug and a kiss, told her congratulations, and made her way up to, uh, uh, my wife and I made her way up to Toledo uh, that night so that I could uh, I could uh, uh, be ready for the pregame skate the next day. So... Uh, Fast forward, we uh, have pregame skate in the morning, and uh, <laughs> and my parents show up, my sister shows up, and then I had extended relatives that haven't ever seen me play hockey show up, my, my aunt and my cousins. And uh, that game, game five, um, after the second period we were losing, um, and uh, Coach Murray told me that I was going in. So... Game five, I get thrown in third period, and we, we were getting shelled. Uh, I ended up not letting in a goal, but we um, we ended up losing that game, and that was to go down in the series three to two, going into game six in Toledo. Um, it was do or die. And, uh, yeah, so after the game, Coach Murray told me I had the nod, and it was just <laughs> kind of blacked out from there, but ended up playing the next game, and we did well enough to, uh, to take it to a game seven back in, in Tulsa. Yeah, so um, you stunned the Toledo crowd, is, is the press reports. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you had just a, a, a heck of a game. Do you remember much about Game 6? Were, were you in the zone, or was it just survival? I mean, did you own it? Did you survive it? What? Uh, so, I, I tend to love large crowds. I don't know why, but I feel like large cr- the larger the crowd, the calmer I am. I actually had this conversation with my 10U team last night just about confidence and, and you know, finding, finding who they are as, as, as people. But, um, yeah, so when I saw the crowd size, I kind of got excited because I knew I was going to play well because I don't know what it is. But, um, yeah, no, I, I, my main focus was just, you know, just the win. That's all I cared for. I didn't, you know, when I was younger, I cared about my stats and I cared about, you know, the way I looked to you know, scout stuff that game, it was just I just wanted the W. So I do remember. Uh, I remember the, the first goal and the second goal. Uh, the first goal was uh, a wide lane drive pass to the front. And I ended up making a toe save on it, and then I thought I was interfered with by their player, but the referee didn't see it that way, and they got their goal. And the second one was a double screen that I, I lost track of the puck. But after that second goal in the second period, I, I, I buttoned it down and ended up taking the dub so let me ask you this at goalie we see it all the time goalie gets scored on how quick does a goalie have to just shrug it off um, they all take a drink by but, the time it crosses the goal line is is probably the best the best of the best we'll forget it that quickly um you know guys have different things uh, one thing that i actually learned from a friend of mine pete fry uh, he's a goalie mindset guy he uh, he told us to smile after we get scored on he says it, it'll reset us mentally if you smile after something like that. And I actually remembered that, used that that moment. I just remember just smiling and going, hey, it's game, it's game six, it's do or die. I'm playing hockey again. Like, 
Well, you're playing hockey, but I mean, like you said, this is conference final. It's a game six. If you lose, you're out. But the team's out. And he was, you know, sitting at home, right? But going, to, am I going to get a call? So it's right. a, it's a bit different. You're, was, you're suddenly shoved into this right. high pressure, like you're it. But right. it was, I mean, what did that mean to you? Because, like you just said, you're sitting at home, and all of a sudden, you know, these guys have been battling the playoffs the whole time, and suddenly you're in a game six, all the pressure's on. I mean, did you feel like you were in a conference final game? Uh, no, it definitely felt like it. It definitely felt like it. I definitely, I definitely felt, uh, I definitely felt the pressure. But there was just, I had peace about the whole situation. You know, growing up, uh, my junior coach actually, <laughs> I feel like he kind of conditioned me this way, where uh, there were several times where. Uh, you know, I played a number of games, and then on my night off, um, this actually happened to me twice, I think. Um, on my night off, we ended up taking a game to OT and then into a shootout. And in the shootout, he would throw me in, completely cold, didn't play the whole game, and I'd play the shootout, and I'd end up you know, take, taking it, we'd win it. Um, so coming in cold was something that I actually enjoyed. Um, probably shouldn't admit this as a goalie, but I saw myself as more of a splitter than a starter. My whole career, I'd rather. I, there's something about monotonous regular season games that just didn't interest me. It's the big games that I really enjoyed. Like that's you know one thing that uh, Team USA saw me um, back when I was 18. They saw the same thing in me, and the coach played me in that way. The, the games against uh, the Czech and the Swede, the Swedes, who we knew we were going to beat. He didn't play me. He played me against Canada and Russia, and those were the games that were that meant the most. And they were the ones that I stood up the most in. So. You come from the e-bug story, which we talked about last time, going into your comeback, which we also talked about. Now that you've had a little bit more time to reflect on the comeback, which was a true comeback, and you know, I invite everybody to look up his stats, even though he didn't care about his comeback stats. His goals against was great. It was like 2.18 or something. It was incredible. Um, looking back now, you had a good, a great season. You take drive it into Tulsa. What did it mean for you personally? Because you had to buy new equipment, yeah. go back into training, yeah. talk to the to the wife, try to convince her that this is a good thing for you to do. <laughs> and you know, I'm married. That's not an easy thing to do, Andrew. <laughs> but we won't we won't talk about wives anymore. But looking back, hey? yeah, <laughs> look, look, looking back on it, I mean, you know, the only thing that would have been better is if you won the cup. Yeah, that's. I, I look back on that. You know, I made some mistakes in Game Seven that I wish I could have taken back. Um, really, the whole day on Game Seven was a huge chaotic event. Uh, that was the year that we had the flood, and uh, my house was on that floodplain. So I was laying sandbags all day, <laughs> the day of the game, uh, leading up to the game. So looking back, I wish I would have just had you know. I prayed over my fence line, and I asked the Lord not to let the water rise over the fence line, which the water rose up to the fence line but didn't break it. So I, I wish I would have trusted trusted that prayer a little bit more and spent more time napping before the game because I felt like I would have been a little bit more on. So how are the teammates receptive to you when you when you uh, were thrown in the situation? Because um, as we all know with the hockey culture and everything, people have their different opinions, but for the most part it seems like you know players that conglom or that, you know, that brotherhood that they create, it's almost instantaneous. Did you feel that when you, were, you came right back to the team in that locker room? You know, it was very different walking into a situation where I was, you know, at some at, with some of the kids I was 10 years older than them. Um, back when I was part of a team, I always felt like I had to try to please and, and be friends with everybody. Um, when I came back, I, I, 
obviously didn't have any feelings or or feel like that it was necessary for me to do that. Um, I was much more mature too. I was very immature back in my younger career. Uh, Anybody who played with me could tell you that, but um, it was more about just working and just being me, and I just had peace with that, and if guys liked me for who I was, okay, and if they didn't, it was all right. I was still going to treat them with respect and love them, and I didn't have to be buddies with everybody, but uh, it was one of those things where I kind of stuck to myself, but I worked so hard that I think that I earned uh, the respect that I saw from the guys. Um, I tell this to my son and my team all the time. when I got cut from the team after tryouts, I continued to train because I really felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me I was going to play again. I was having dreams about it. So there were some days I had a high school shooter, Dayton French, he was a Samboni driver at the OIC, shooting on me. And it was just him and I on the ice where, where the Oilers would show up to you know, work, work out and, 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 and do their skate for the day. I'd be on the ice with this high school shooter, and I could only imagine what they thought of me. Like, what is this guy doing? And, why is this old guy practicing still? He just got cut. But I think that it was all one of those things that the Lord set up an opportunity for me to show everybody that, you know, like, one, that when he gives you dreams and a vision, that, like, he means it. And if you walk through it, you can you can accomplish it. And, uh, and two, it was just a new way of earning respect and honor from guys who I'm sure at the beginning probably didn't understand what was happening. Yeah, yeah and how did it personally to you, finishing the career the, the way that you did on such a high, has that taken you to new heights personally, or was it just something you completed and you're done with it? I would imagine it would have some impact on. Yeah, you. no, it definitely did. It re it reinvigorated my love for the game, and that was something that I originally prayed about before this whole thing to take uh, happen. Is I was sitting at, at BMW. I was working as a sales associate. I. I was upset because I didn't get the, the manager position at the at the job, and I, I had the credentials for it. And I remember just asking the Lord to, to put me in something that I loved. And at the time, hockey wasn't even on the radar. And that's when Gary Steffes called me and said, hey, come play hockey. And then the whole door opened up for me to play in the dreams and stuff. And now I'm coaching a, a 10U team, and I'm a co-owner of the local youth hockey, um, uh, school of hockey program here. And uh, it's just... It's completely reignited me now. Now we're uh, my father and I run camps across the country in Tulsa and, and in Utah and in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're actually going to be adding a, a fourth camp uh, location next summer. And it's just completely blown up to a point where it's like my dad always joked. He's like, "I've got a doctorate in hockey. <laughs> you know, like I've got yeah. I, I've spent enough of my life." studying and perfecting and mastering this craft it would be such a shame for me to throw it away and um, one thing about my dad is he let me kind of figure it out you know he just backed off and, and allowed me to figure it out and here it is again so let's talk about that you you got Kessridge goaltending camps yep and the new school of hockey which we follow uh, yep. here in Tulsa talk a little bit about that oh and also you're still tied into the Tulsa team here at the ECHA EC. East Coast League. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about the School of Hockey because it's not the typical youth program, even though off-air you mentioned it's very similar to programs in the United States. But talk a little bit about that, particularly for our Tulsa listeners that might want their kids to get involved. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's definitely cutting edge, but it's nothing new. Um, 
academy style hockey has been around for a number of years, but it's definitely growing. Um, Derek Toninato uh, and Clage Cable started School of Hockey, um, I want to say four years ago, maybe even five years ago. Uh, but it started from very humble beginnings, and what it was was a, it was a it was a product for uh, homeschool kids that wanted to do more and get on the ice more. And um, it really has evolved in Tulsa to the point now where we have a co-op of kids and parents that has a teacher that runs a classroom in the beginning parts of the day, and then Clage and I uh, uh, will help run the School of Hockey program, which is off-ice conditioning um, at a gymnastics studio uh, two days a week or a professional um, training facility two days a week, the other two days a week. Um, but, uh, and then we've also got, we got them involved in gymnastics and swimming and whatever type of training you can even get them involved with, we've been trying to put in front of them. We do boxing, uh, they do video lessons, and then they do uh, on-ice lessons with us until 3.30, so pretty much any kid who goes to a regular school gets out around 4.30. Our kids are getting out at 3.30. They're going to school. They're getting their training, and uh, and it's just a higher level of, of training that you know, we're happy to uh, to provide for Tulsa. So it's like 8 to noon, you were saying, is school. So that's the classroom, yep. Classroom school, just like regular school, yep. and then the afternoons, it's it's uh, on ice, like Off you said, ice video and, and on ice training, yeah, yeah, and like you said, the other activities, and it's going great. Yeah, it's going it's going really well. Uh, one thing that we did last year is we we polled and, and talked to all of the parents who were involved and asked them what could we do better, what do you like, and one of the resounding things was uh, former years because of ice, uh, we weren't able to have a consistent schedule, so two days a week. Um, they were early and two days a week they were late so we worked with the ice rink with uh, Justin Lund, the owner and uh, we asked to see if we could get the ice later in the day and make it so that we put schools a priority first work out video and then on ice and make it consistent and uh, we've seen a lot of success with it this year so and us knowing that you know you're certainly uh, not afraid to share your faith at all and I'm not saying you're holding Bible study for these kids but as far as morality being a good human being um, what are those type of things that you're teaching those kids? Well, I mean, we get, I could interject faith into every every single thing that we do. Um, actually, we just hired Gary Steffes. He does. He's doing an eight week course with the kids on uh, confidence and the mental side of the game. And the whole uh, 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 the whole object of what I can see Gary's teaching is to know your identity in Christ first before you identify or do identify as a hockey player because. If you watch now in the NHL and a lot of professional sports, mental training and the mental side is becoming such a huge part of sports. And unfortunately, it's because a lot of kids grow up identifying as an athlete first, and then they don't know what to do when that athlete can or can't perform, or if they lose that ability to perform in athletic, uh, in, in athletic competitions, they don't know who they are anymore. And, um, you know, you see it with guys like, uh, or you see it with movements like lift the mask right now. I don't know if you've seen that with goalies where, you know, goalies have a lot of pressure on them to, to save the game. You know, it's kind of like a, a baseball pitcher, you know, like you can't score any runs as a pitcher, but you can prevent them. Same with the goalie, you know, like I can't go down and score a goal, but I can prevent them. So that, all that pressure, if you're not confident in who you are and you identify with your, your performance, well, you're going to identify as a, a great person when you're playing well and a poor, a poor person when you're not. So 
it's one of those things that we're, we're taking very seriously about raising our kids here in Tulsa to know that what their identity is in first uh, as a person. So when did you learn your identity? Because, you know, in the last episode in Off Air 2, you talked about how when you were younger, um, you know, you weren't necessarily the, the best person to play or work with. Maybe that's just the competitiveness, but at what point did you start to become humble and confident in yourself and turn into the person that you are now? Because I'm sure people talking to you or hearing you talk, yeah. they, they, I, I'm surprised you were like that. Oh, no. Then, so. Anybody who played <laughs> with me before I originally retired knows that I was an animal. Yeah, yeah. I... Um, I really seek the acceptance of man so much that like I was like a chameleon. If I hung out with a group of guys that would like to smoke pot, I was the, I smoked the most pot out of everybody. If I was around guys that wanted to go to the strip club, I was at the strip club. It was one of those things where I identified so strongly with trying to get acceptance that I didn't know who I was. And it wasn't until I, well, I met Gary, and Gary showed me what it was like to live a life for the Lord and not for myself and for a pleasing man. Um, then I started to walk in that way, and that's actually, coincidentally, exactly when I lost my career. I gave my life to the Lord, and the next day, I lost my career playing hockey. And if it wasn't for that severance, I would still probably, even to this day, have a part of me that identify as a hockey player first, and not as a child of God. So, it was a blessing that I didn't recognize at the time, but losing my job playing hockey really saved me. Well, in losing your job, did that not kill your motivation and like just for the game in general? Not to even go back and play, but I'm sure for a while, you know, you probably didn't even care to even talk about hockey, right? No, I, I, I really. It was funny because even when I played, it's it wasn't something I enjoyed because I was so up and down. Like anybody who played with me and played against me knew that I was a head case. Like if I let in goals, I would, I'd snap. I'd, I got fights with my own teammates. Like, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I was out of control and it was it was all because I like I said I identified so strongly in, in my performance so once once that was released for me it was it was something that I never looked back at and I remember uh, the first job I got after fully retired because I went up to New York for a few months uh, after that after I got cut but I remember looking up and seeing Jonathan Quick winning two cups and I remember playing side by side with that guy with Team USA and at the time, you know, I had better stats. And I remember looking up and just not even thinking about it. Just didn't care. Didn't care. Didn't even think about it. And, uh, yeah, so letting go of it was actually pretty easy because it wasn't that great of an experience. Right. I want to shout, uh, give a little uh, push to Gary, who was a great guest for us. Yep. Yeah. Also referred some good plays to us. Have you, have you heard his podcast? Yes. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's doing really well. Clage um, and I... Um, uh, just so everybody knows, Clage is uh, uh, co-owner. Uh, him and I are co-owners of uh, School of Hockey now. Um, him and I are really, really wanting to get Gary more involved, actually so much so that he's going to be coming up twice this year to work with our kids. Um, and then we also have gotten more involved with doing the, the Zoom calls by our weekly with the kids as well. So we love Gary so much. He's, he's a big part of us. So awesome. Yeah, no, he is great. So we've interviewed since we've chatted – 50 other players from all over leagues and everything else. One thing that we do notice is uh, a lot of players do struggle. They struggle mentally, which we, we've been talking about. Right. Um, and, you know, it's strange. Like, you know, Theo Flory was talking about all the trauma that he went through in his life and how he went into, you know, just kind of, an, and he said it wasn't a, um, 
he woke up and was this way. It was a progression thing that he couldn't see that he was getting himself in things that he shouldn't have been involved with until he's ready to, you know, think about ending his life. But we've had so many other players that have struggled with either substance or uh, alcohol or even just like you talked about. I never thought my career would end or as it's coming to an end, it didn't end the way that I thought it would be. Right. You see a lot of guys who, when hockey's everything, when they lose it, they have nothing. You know, and it's. But hockey has to be everything in order to get to the level that you're at, right? Well, I don't think you have to take. I don't have. I don't think you have to take that approach mentally. I think you got to take that approach physically with your training and with what you do. But there has to be a disconnect. There has to be a disconnect where you, when you go home, your your husband, father, dad, whatever, like. Whatever, whoever you are outside of the rink, you gotta you gotta recognize that like that's who you really are first, and then hockey is just kind of an attachment to who you are. And unfortunately, like you, like you said, like guys struggle. Like gambling's a big thing too. Yeah. Guys, where we we try to find these outs of satisfying the the void that's in our heart, and we try to plug it in with stats and how well we do and when that doesn't work then we turn to booze we turn to alcohol we turn to girls I mean it's it's one of those things that when you don't know who you are and if Jesus doesn't fill that void in your heart then it's an endless it's an endless hole that will just keep going and going and going and that's every guy that you talk to that goes down that rabbit hole gets so deep into it before they recognize they're at rock bottom you know that's Unfortunately, a lot of guys get to that point where, actually, a um, uh, famous uh, apologist, Robbie Zacharias, uh, late, late Robbie Zacharias, um, he talked about there was a, a great football player whose his dream was to, to win the Super Bowl, but he found himself on a bed of suicide after they won the Super Bowl because he realized it wasn't everything that it was cracked up to be. You know, and it's one of those things that's almost like this false, this false. Um, pretense that we live by that we're gonna all of a sudden get there and it's gonna feel like it's different it's not we're the same person you know right so do you I know that you're part of this change but are you seeing a change in hockey it seems from our from our side as a fan side talking to players like yourself and talking to coaches um, that players are, are starting to be coached a little bit differently where it's not always about hockey you got to take care of yourself you also kind of have to have your life in a little order, yep. whether that be spiritually yep. or orderly in, in, in another way. Um, but it, it just seems like you, people are starting to get it now. Yep. Is yep. that you agree with that? Yeah, hundred um, percent. Like we said earlier, the, the lift the mass movement has been really big for goalies, where guys are starting to talk about it. You know, uh, when I first started playing in the Central Hockey League back in shoot was in two thousand eight, the bravado was. You're a tough hockey player. Nothing should get under your skin. And no matter what happens in a locker, you just have to act like it doesn't bother you. And, you know, that mentality doesn't allow for growth or closeness to even another person. And if you carry that on in your regular life and you don't confess or talk about the things that you struggle with, you won't find common ground with other people and think that you're on an island. You know, if you think that you're the only one going through it, then it's a very lonely place to be. But once you start opening up and getting vulnerable with people, which, unfortunately, the culture of the sport, an athletic locker room, you know, like, that's not a place where guys will say, hey, I'm really struggling with something. I'm really struggling with this. And, like, a lot of the times, it's 
it's it's just that that vulnerability that will open the door for guys to, to start to heal. So yeah, and what is that dichotomy of of having to be a pro in the locker room? So expect you to be a pro, meaning you know you handle your own stuff, but yet you might not be able to handle your own stuff. Right. Right. Well, that starts with leadership. I think. I think that. When leadership creates an environment uh, from the top down to let guys know that they're in a, a comfortable, safe environment, I think that that allows guys to open up and start to talk more. And if guys open up and start to talk more, then the people that surround them can address the issues with forms of healing, whether that's church or uh, or some type of mental trainer like like uh, you saw Carrie Price go through. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Is is it true, uh, hockey fan question, is it true that the assistant coach, at least at the AHL, ECHA level, is more of a, uh, they're the good guy, the head coach is a bad guy? <laughs> yeah. So we, 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 we had on Mark Strobel, who's a assistant up there with Tony Granato up in Wisconsin. Uh-huh. So he's an associate up there. And, you know, we talk about it. Of course, he had a great AHL career. And uh, he says, yeah, I'm the, I'm the dad. Of, of the, the dad, team, huh? yeah. You know, he's the dad. He doesn't want to be, but you know, and he's uh, this old school guy of you know, you got to play through it. And now he's like, well, if your tummy hurts, only you know how you feel. Yeah, he's oh like, God. it's not a. Yeah, it's but different now. He says that's kind of true. Is that your experience in the pros? You know, it it, it really it, not so much in the pros. There wasn't that many assistant coaches that were legitimate coaches. It was more of player coaches who guys were like who were retiring that kind of sat on the bench and ran the D-door. Um, but in junior hockey, um, actually one of the guys that um, Clage grew up playing with was that he was that dad. And I remember he was one of the only guys I can remember that was trying to be a voice of reason while I was going down my wild path. Like I was I remember I was just so I was smoking cigarettes in the parking lot before the game and he came up to me, he's like, Cass, what do you think? Like Whoa, dude, you're living your life the wrong way. Like, what's going on? And try talking to me. And I just, you know, at the time, I didn't realize he was there for me. I just took it. I was like, you're being soft. Like, let me smoke my cigarette and go play, you know? So, that obviously, it builds kind of a, a weird world for hockey players than just the kind of the, the tough it out and tough it out. But there is a, there's got to be a good balance of still, you can still be the tough hockey player. It doesn't matter what role you're in, even if, even if you're the more of a tough guy, but... You still have to have that mindset because the sport is incredibly physical, very fast. But do you think that hockey players will be able to find that balance of when they start to struggle, they can say something and not be looked at as somebody that's mentally weak or something? Or do you do you see that players are having trouble with that? I mean, have you noticed anything like that? I think in the, way the, I think the players are struggling with that. I think the players, when they start to have that tough moment where they, they want to feel vulnerable, they want to get vulnerable, but they don't have an outlet, I think that that's been the biggest fail of sports, period, right now. I think that with all the pressures and, uh, and, and, and performing night in and night out, not having somebody on the team or a, or a mentor that they can look to to confess and be vulnerable with, is that needs to change. Well, and it's sad because it's, we're all humans in the end, but a lot of people's reactions, you know, especially on... You know the cesspool that is the internet is that uh, yeah, yeah. you know these people they make millions of dollars playing the sport they love so they should just shut up and deal with it and their lives are fine but in reality I mean you could be rich and still have problems still oh, have things to yeah. go through and they kind of forget yeah you have the privilege of being a professional athlete but it's also I mean, 
it's not, still a lot of pressure, like you said. Not, not not having understanding of where a person is or going through and saying that money is going to be the solve of any problem is just that's an ignorant thing to say. And a lot of unfortunately, a lot of people just look at that look at it that way. Um, I, I don't obviously. Like, I, I don't see that. I see a lot of people who are very wealthy that struggle. I actually saw a friend who's he's going to be in jail now for a very long time um, who had tons of success. And it's just one of those things that, like, until you walk in that person's shoes, you don't have any clue of what's going on with them. So it's uh, another common misconception that is worth noting is that um, today's man, uh, or at least early 2000s man, was vulnerability was looked at as weakness instead of strong. I think that is slowly starting to flip. Uh, I think the sports world is probably going to be the one last thing, last place for it to flip in though, but it's coming, is that, you know, like, if you look at moments in history where, um, or in the Bible where guys get vulnerable and admit their mistakes, that's where strength comes. That's where, that's where God can fill the, the, the gap and the void. But it's when we try to do things in our own strength, we realize that we can't, we can't do it sometimes, you know, like we can't manufacture every single opportunity that lays in front of us. Like I could never manufacture coming out of retirement. Like that was the Lord walking me through it. And if it wasn't for me balancing out, like working what he put my hand to, then I never would have happened. So there's so many instances and I, I keep mentioning Theo Fleury just because he was just on a few weeks ago. Sure. But I also think back to Shane Corson. He has a very similar story. These are guys that are multimillionaires, playing in the NHL a long time. They're not happy. Great careers too. Great careers. They're not happy. They've gotten themselves so far deep that they didn't realize they're getting themselves deep. And both of them said at some point in time the only thing they had to turn to was they had to find our spirituality, whether that be Jesus, whether that be another deity, whether that just be whatever, Mother Nature. They, it's the reoccurring theme we hear about is that you have to have that or you can't live. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's strange because they're not what I would say members of uh, FCA hockey. Sure. Right, 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 yeah. right, you know right. what I mean? Well, um, I've heard it said this way before. Um, I, you're not a body. You're a spirit you're, that has a body. So a lot of the times we overlook that spirit and we throw it to the side and we focus so much on the materialistic world that we lose our sense of our lose our sense of hope. Like when you put your hope in the world, like obviously it's going to get smashed to bits. Um, so having that rooted spirituality in who you are and knowing who you are, like I, I'm when I st- I started searching, I started delving into the spirit realm and. and who I was, gosh, um, a little bit in college is when I started before. It was just like, I was just this, I felt like a paper bag blowing in the wind, you know? I just looking back, I'm like, man, I really had no clue what I was doing. And then I started searching, like, I started following, like, the Mayan calendar and Buddhism and Taoism and, like, all these other things. And I, I you know, I saw kinks in the theology because I would dig really deep into them. And that's eventually when I landed on Jesus and recognize that that was, that was the greatest truth that I've ever heard or ever could hear. Um, but like I said earlier, these guys who are experiencing that, that whole, they could have all the trophies on the wall and money in the bank account, but if you don't have that, that hole, that void in your heart filled by Jesus, it's not going to get filled by a number of cars, successes, it's just it will never get filled. So a pro athletic career, as you know, I'm preaching to the choir, 
is a very small moment in time, a yep. small <laughs> moment in right. a lifetime. So now that you've had all these experiences, good, bad, and different, this has been your journey, your path, uh, looking in spirituality, finding what works best for you. Yep. What are you now at this moment in time and in the future, what do you feel you're meant to be? What is your mission? What's your passion? What are you supposed to be doing? So my impact is where I'm not, where I'm at now. Whatever I've got in front of me, that's what the Lord has me impacting now. Um, when I worked in the car industry, my mentor there, CJ, told me that I was a minister to the transportation needs of the people. So that's who I was. I did it to the best of my ability. I served people. I loved on people. I prayed with people. I, I did what I could do in that capacity. And through that, it grew me to a point where I started to learn how to grow my own business and that's how I got to the point where I'm at now. And now I'm ministering to these kids. Um, you know, we do, I do, I, I, I do a lot of mentorship with kids at my camps where I'll teach them my walk and very similar conversation to what we're having about identifying as a player and identifying as a child of God and explaining to them the difference and why what I did was there was a rabbit hole that led me to nowhere, just blackness. And um, so my impact is where I'm at now. So the camps that I go to, I make sure that I'm loving on, serving, and talking to those kids. And, and even with uh, school of hockey, like same same deal. So as far as the future goes, I I would love to one day be an NHL goal coach and break the mold of what guys are doing. Um, but right now, that's not my passion. My passion is these kids and and growing my camps and making a bigger impact through um, through these camps. So it sounds like that uh, you just simply became open-minded and that whatever, what, like you just said, was going to be put in front of you, you were going to do to the best of your ability, and that was your calling for maybe during that time. Do you think that that's what a lot of the pro athletes, obviously talking about all hockey players right now too, is after they retire that they're not open-minded, maybe they're trying to stick with hockey, but maybe if it's being an analyst or something, it's not for them, and then they just try and struggle. Do you, is that kind of a, a thing they should keep in mind is just to be open-minded and just whatever's thrown your way, just do it and do it to your best of your ability? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody's different. Um, you know, some guys get right into it and it's natural. Um, other guys, it seems like they jump into the position because they don't know what else to do with their lives. Um, but yeah, I, I'd agree with that. So we've, since we've interviewed you last year, we always end the podcast with lightning round questions. Sure. Yeah. So I don't think we did it. I don't think and if we did, did it's, it's going to be worthwhile. So you could just say blah, 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 and it's done. We move on. If, okay. there, if there's a story, if there's a story, go ahead. That's fine. Sure. So here we go. And we're we'll a pro first. at it now. Yeah. Ready? Yeah, you can go okay. First. So who is the toughest shooter you've ever had to face? Rick Nash. The worst ice conditions in your whole career? It doesn't matter if it's pro or juniors. Oh, gosh. Um, there was one time we had to play in an outdoor rink when I was a kid, and I remember just piles of snow everywhere, um, and the puck, it actually looked like a mold going underneath the snow sometimes. So I don't remember the name of the facility, but it was way back. My dad would probably know. We usually ask this as, for, as defensemen, but this will work as a goalie. So can you name a guy or two that were so strong, not enforcer strong, but just so strong that you couldn't move them in front of the net. There's just no way they were going to move. Uh, Mike Scroy. <laughs> I, ha I played with him for a number of years, and then I played against him for a number of years. This guy was a pit bull. He was just all muscle. 
Was there anybody that ever got under your skin? Anybody that instigated you as a goal? Especially when you're younger, if you had that temper, somebody had to go after you or say something. There was one guy, gosh, I can't remember his name now. He played it, played for Wichita. I was with Wichita, then played for Tulsa. Actually, there's a funny video on YouTube of me laying him out behind the bench, or behind the net. Um, but he really bothered me. There was something about the way he talked to people. And uh, when I got the chance to play against him, he actually slew-footed me like three times. Really? Yeah, if you look it up, it's like... Uh, Tulsa versus Wichita Christmas game, and it was a Christmas game too. So I was upset that, that day anyway because we we're playing at Christmas. But, right. <laughs> yeah, I laid him out behind the behind the net. I just had it up. I had it up to here with him. Did a so brawl did, occur or anything after that? Uh, no, I tried to fight the other goalie, but the ref pulled me away. So I, you know, I got my two minute penalty, but stood inside so, the so, net. So, so what do you do in a bench brawl? I mean, you know, the goalies got to face off with each other. Most of the time, it's like, you know. Hey, I gotta, I, you know, listen, you know, I'm on the bench here, buddy. It's all, it's, it's all contingent upon. Well, you're talking about in, in a game. Like yeah. The the yeah. Goal, it's all contingent upon how I'm playing. If I've let in three bad goals, I'm going down to the other end. It doesn't matter. Oh, really? Oh, 100 percent, 100 percent. No, I actually did that my uh, my rookie season. Um, both both me and the other goalie, we're we're having very we're we're struggling. Three goals in the first period. Next thing you know, a fight breaks out. He jumps in. I said, I've let three goals. I might as well go down there. I don't want to be in anymore. So we get in a fight. Then you get to pack it up tonight. I was about to say, so they took you out of the game? And yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. When you fly, when you cross the red line or, or fight like that, yeah. You're okay, yeah. gotcha, gotcha. And so if you're coming off the bench, it's, you know, everybody's on the ice, and you're just a backup, and you, you just hook up with the other backup and go, I've never you, been in that situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen a lot of guys who do that. Um, I, I'd imagine that that's who I am now, but back then I probably would have been so full of vinegar and piss that yeah. I probably would have <laughs> probably knocked somebody out. Who is the best defenseman? That you played with on your team. Oh gosh, um, who helped you out the most? Best defenseman. Um, I can tell you, my favorite defenseman is Steve Mackway. That guy was so mean that nobody wanted to go in front of the net. I remember watching him knock out the top row of somebody's teeth when he snowed uh, one of our back, my, the backup goalie. He completely knocked out the guy's teeth, just cross-checking right the teeth. It's hard. He, he wasn't the most skilled guy, but he was a good, good, good defenseman. But he was just one of those guys that would clear the net, and nobody would nobody would go for him. Who was your favorite teammate? Favorite teammate, Gary Stavis. Awesome. Gary Stavis. Yeah, no, he was the biggest easy. impact. That was an easy one. Yeah, easy. So when when you have a defenseman that screens you, and you're telling them you're screening me, get out or whatever, and it goes in, do they know it? Do they actually say I'm sorry, or do they even? Do you sometimes have to go? Yeah. Get out of the way and let me see the puck. Yeah, no, actually, that was my. That, I consistently told guys before games, if the shot's coming from the point, don't worry about the shot. I've got it. So you just pick up a stick and get out of the way. So that's. Yeah. I, I didn't have too many guys that would stand in front of me because I would always communicate like, this is easy. If I'm seeing the puck from the blue line, it doesn't matter if it's a slap shot or not. I'm going to stop it. So just make sure that I can see it, get out of the way, make sure you pick up anybody's stick from tipping it. You play with Team USA. You've played in multiple different leagues. You've had a great pro career. What is your greatest memory? Greatest memory? It would definitely have to be um, when I, we were standing on the blue line after we won uh, the IIHF World Tournament. We just got done beating, uh, gosh, I forget what team it was, the finals. I didn't play. Corey Schneider played that game. But we were standing on the blue line. And they, they had given out all the medals. We won first place. And then I remember standing there, and I remember I, I heard my name over the speaker, and I remember hearing, oh, that's that's weird, they called my name. And everybody kind of looked at me, and they're like, Ian, go. And I'm like, what? And they said, MV, MV, MVG, most valuable goalie of the tournament. And I remember skating over there just blown away that I was 
nominated for it that I that I earned it. That was a really cool moment. I have one more goalie question real quick. Was there a player that would be coming down into the zone and would always score on you? So was there a player that was coming down and you just you got nervous or did you panic or was it just there's there's nobody like that? No, I I, I always I, I never thought of it that way. I I actually liked it when the better shooters came down because I felt it like more of a challenge. Yeah. So there's never anybody in a, uh, in the games or anybody I played against uh, that I felt that way about. Last question. The most embarrassing thing to happen to you during a game. Most embarrassing. Or, or funniest thing to happen to so you during So one time, I was playing against Wichita. I just got traded from them, so I was a little... I never liked playing against them again just because, you know, you're playing against teammates that you were once on the team. And, right. You know, I didn't like a lot of the guys. A lot of the guys didn't like me. There was one game where their fighter, who was absolutely brutal, I forget what his name was. He might as well have been Igor, but he was like <laughs> six foot five, had no hand, he had feet for hands. They dumped the puck, and this had to be okay, Center, too, so you know the boards. We were just talking about this earlier. They dumped the puck in. He goes, he gets there first, and he goes to pick up the puck. He misses it, goes completely through his legs, hits the wall, and it's supposed to be going behind the net. So I read it, and I start to step out of my net but it hits the dasher and pops straight towards me. Well, he reaches, takes a swat at the puck, misses it completely, and it dribbles through my legs. And he starts cheering in front of me. And I'm like, you big oaf, you didn't even touch the puck. <laughs> but I was so embarrassed at that, that like, that it was that goal and there was another one where I jumped out of the net and the guy dumped it in and hit the net from like the red line. And I, oh, I missed it, it was bad. Do you ever get mad if a defenseman accidentally tipped it in to your own net? Is that ever a thing, or does that you when, I, brush when, it I was, off? when I was younger, I would get mad at everybody. It didn't matter who it was; they could have been on the bench. <laughs> so I was you like, just a hothead. Oh, That's it. I would get mad at the Don't scorekeeper. Don't talk to me at all. <laughs> I, I got mad at the scorekeeper. I remember when I was playing in Tulsa, I was so hell bent on my stats. There, it, I averaged it one year. I remember watching through the videos too and going, "I was right." They, they would miss an average of eight to nine shots a game in Tulsa. I was taking around 45, 50 shots a game, and they were showing 35, 37. And so I would, if you would watch my younger games, you would see me going epileptic in the net, pointing at the clock, throwing my hands around. I'm standing there by myself, yelling at the scorekeeper. And nobody heard me. Right. You know, I was say. You know, like I'm looking around, like find, trying to find out where this person's standing so I can yell at him. That's so funny. That's good stuff. Yeah. So. Ian, Ian, we can't thank you enough. We don't want to keep you anymore because, uh, you know, you got to go. But thank you for coming on again. And again, you're. Uh, no matter what you do, where you go in life, you know that you've got a special place in our heart because we wouldn't be actually be here doing this. So, no, yeah. and it's been great. This has been great for him and I as father and son. Yep. Very cool. Yes. And uh, this has been a great bonding thing for us over a year. So, thank you so much. Yeah, Thanks again. Thanks for lunch. Yeah. Yeah.